Aren't you grateful for a worship team that works so hard to make sure that we can worship God so deeply and so thoroughly? I could have got up here and just said amen, giving you a benediction, and we could have gone home saying we had church. But after Doug pumping things up, you know, got to do something else. Uh, Our scripture this morning comes from Esther chapter 9, verses 20 through 22. Mordecai recorded these events and sent letters to the Jews near and far throughout all the provinces of King Xerxes, calling on them to celebrate an annual festival on these two days. He told them to celebrate these days with feasting and gladness and by giving gifts of food to each other and presents to the poor. This would commemorate a time when the Jews gained relief from their enemies, when their sorrow was turned into gladness and their mourning into joy. Would you bow with me one more time in prayer? God, we hear your word. Now, Holy Spirit, we ask again for the wisdom to understand it. Amen. Okay, so if you talk to me for any amount of time at all, you know I love film. I love shows. I love series. I love cinema. That's just One of the ways that I understand the world, it gets me excited. I love making lists. I love ranking and analyzing. And one of the things I love talking about in film or even in literature are the characters. Because let's face it, a good story is good mostly because of the characters, who they are, what they go through, the obstacles they face, the victories they win. It's characters that make a story. And if you think back through cinema or through literature, the characters are what stands out. I mean, think back. Romeo and Juliet. Lenny and George. Luke, Han, Leia, Chewbacca. Jerry, Elaine, George, Kramer. Right? See, when I say these names, when I say these characters... You're getting a picture in your mind. You're thinking of things they said, things they did, and you're feeling some sort of emotion, even about the villains. I mean, think about Hannibal Lecter or Michael Corleone. When I name a character, that character's story comes to mind for you. It's because characters matter, and that's because stories matter. Think about this. When you meet someone new, what's one of the first things? Well, if you're an introvert, first thing you do is say hi, and then you go somewhere else so you can be alone. But first thing we generally do when we meet someone new, the way we get to know each other is by doing what? Sharing our story. Who you are, what you do for a living, who your family is, where you're from. Story matters. Characters matter. And the Bible has been deemed by numerous people as the greatest story ever told. And we don't mean story in a fictitious sense, because stories absolutely can be true events. But the Bible being the greatest story ever told is because of a couple things. One, it's because it is the story of God. But it's also the story of us how we relate to God, how God relates to us, how we relate to the rest of the world. And if you read God's story and you go back to the Old Testament, 
you find a richness and a depth of character that it's hard to find anywhere else. The Old Testament is full of fantastic stories with fantastic characters. And by the way, the Old Testament is full of characters, even if they are the hero, it's full of characters who are flawed. Full of characters where we are allowed to see everything about them. And that's so important because that gives us hope. Because here's the great thing about the story of God. The story of God does not end so much with the book of John's revelation. Yes, that tells the very end, but until that happens, do you know what is happening right now? The story is still being written. God is still creating the story. And guess who are the main players? You and I. God is using us right now to continue to write the story of God and the story of the world. Think about this. Your life may be the only Bible that some people ever read. They may never open those pages, but they see you. And if you claim the name of Christ, you are telling the story of God each and every day. And I think when we look back in the story of God, our story makes a little more sense. It shows us how we can live out God's story the way God wants us to. So this morning we read from the book of Esther, one of the greatest stories God has ever told. If you've never read the book of Esther, let me encourage you to do so. It is fantastic and it is full of great characters. You have a valiant heroine in Esther. You've got tremendous supporting characters, both heroes and villains. You've got intrigue, you've got drama, you've got everything necessary for a great story. So let me give you the short version. Let me give you the recap of the story of Esther. It's 480 BCE, roughly, and the largest empire in the known world is the Persian Empire with Xerxes I as the king. And the Jewish people have been absorbed into this empire. That's the way the Persians did it. They just absorbed other people groups. So much so that they could barely keep track of who was and wasn't a part of their empire specifically. So there's a young Jewish girl named Esther. She's under the care of her much older cousin Mordecai, and she is taken into the king's harem, and eventually he falls in love with her, and he makes her the queen. Now, he does not realize that his young queen Esther is Jewish. And because of his great love for Esther... Xerxes gives her older cousin, her caretaker Mordecai, an important position in the palace. Now, a few years go by, and Xerxes promotes a man, a very talented man named Haman, to the number two position in the kingdom. He's basically like a royal vizier. He's second only to the king. And Haman is full of ambition. Haman is full of guile. But he's also an egomaniac. Whenever Haman goes out in public, all the officials bow and show him reverence, except for Mordecai, because Mordecai is a Jew, and the Jews don't bow to anyone except God Almighty. Well, Haman, being being just who he is, he can't stand this, 
And he finds out that Mordecai is Jewish. So Haman comes up with a plan. He goes to Xerxes and said, listen, king, you need to know there is a dangerous and subversive people group in your kingdom. These Hebrews, they're plotting sedition. They are spreading and propagating treason. So here's what you need to do, king. You need to send out a royal decree that on March 7th of next year, any member of the kingdom, any resident subject can kill any of the Hebrews that they see. And if they do so, they get to keep their property. They get to take the property of the slain person. Haman is incentivizing the king to enact genocide upon an entire entire people group simply because one man embarrassed him publicly. And Haman goes a little further and says, I'll tell you what, I'm going to sweeten the deal, Xerxes. If you do this, I'll give a large sum of money from my personal, my family's treasury into the royal treasury. So Xerxes, again, not knowing that his beloved queen is Jewish, sends out this decree across the kingdom. Mordecai hears about the the decree and he goes to Esther and says, listen, all of us are about to get wiped out. You've got to do something about this. Now, pause on this discussion because while Mordecai is talking to Esther, Haman has gone home and he's talked to his wife and he says, okay, I've, I've got them. The king is going to help us get rid of all these Jews. So I'm going to get this guy Mordecai. And his wife says, well, you know what? He disrespected you so personally, you need to go even further with him. You need to make a personal example of this Mordecai. So on his wife's advice, Haman has this 75-foot pole sharpened on which they plan to impale the body of Mordecai and set it up in the middle of the city so that everyone can see. So Haman's going to show everyone, you disrespect me and you see what you get. Okay, Mordecai's talking to Esther. He says, look, we're about to be wiped out. You need to do something. You're the queen. Go to the king and get something done. And you might think, well, that would be easy, right? King and queen, they're married. She should be able to talk to him. doesn't work that way. The king hasn't called for her in some time. And in that culture at that time, if you entered the king's chambers without being requested, you were subject to immediate execution unless the king immediately raised the gold scepter that he kept on his throne in your direction. So Esther has this choice to make. Do I stay silent and risk me and my people getting annihilated? However, remember, nobody knows that she's Jewish. So she probably would have been safe in the palace. Or do I try to save my people and risk my life in the process? Well, Esther has everyone fast. And the text isn't explicit, but the presumption is they're fasting and praying for three days. So after that, she walks into the king's chambers. I mean, can can you imagine the cold grip of fear? Can you imagine the, the knot in her stomach as she goes in? She walks in, the king immediately extends his scepter towards her. Says, oh, I haven't seen you in so long. It's so great to see you, my love. What do you need? Ask me anything and I'll do it. But here's the problem. 
She can't say, I need you to repeal this law. Because in that culture, again, when a king sets out a law, no one, not even the king, can violate it. And the king can't repeal it. Once it's law, it's law. And it's applicable to everyone. So here's what Esther says. She says, look, Xerxes, I've been missing you. Why don't we set up a really nice dinner? Here's what I need to happen. I need it to be just me and you, but invite your top man, Haman, too. So in between this time, Xerxes remembers that Mordecai had uncovered an assassination plot against him, and Xerxes never thanked him. So Xerxes calls Haman in and says, Haman, listen, I've got a man in the empire I need to honor. What should I do for this man? Well, of course, Haman thinks, well, it's me. So Haman goes all out. He says, all right, king, that's great. Here's what you got to do. Take the man, first put a royal robe on him. Xerxes says, oh, yeah, that's, that's good. That's good. But let's keep going. Haman says, okay, he's got the royal robe on. Now put him on a royal horse. Oh, that's, that, that's even better. Haman goes a step further. Have someone from the palace, a high official, lead the horse around the city, calling out everywhere he goes, hail the man that the king honors. And everyone has to bow to him. And Xerxes says, Haman, that is a fantastic idea. Go get Mordecai, do all this for him. And by the way, you're going to be the one to lead the horse around. I love it when things come back around. But it gets better. So Haman has to do this. And this is humiliating enough. But now we come to the banquet. Xerxes is there. Esther's there. Haman's there. And again, Haman's thinking, all right, finally time for old Haman to get what he deserves. Esther looks down the whole banquet. The whole meal, she just looks forlorn. Xerxes finally says, what's wrong? You've been troubled all night. Esther says, well, I've got an enemy who's trying to kill me and my people. No one knows she's Jewish, not even Haman. I've got an enemy trying to kill me and my people. Xerxes is furious. He stands up. You tell me who that is, and they're dead before the next day. Esther says, oh, by the way, it's Haman sitting right here. I can imagine whatever food or drink was in Haman's mouth at the time is all over the table at this point. So Xerxes storms out. He's furious. He's fuming. Haman realizes this is it. He throws himself at Esther's feet, is grasping at her robe, begging for forgiveness. Xerxes walks back in the room. He sees the scenario And let's just say he assumes it is a personal and intimate attack upon his wife. So he grabs Haman, has him impaled on the 75-foot pole, has the pole stood up in the middle of the city as an example. Haman, the little weasel, got exactly what he deserved. But there's still the problem of the decree. How can the Jews be saved? Esther says, okay, king, here's what you got to do. Give another decree that says the Jews can defend themselves. The king sends it out. They do. They do very well. And everything is fine. And that is what our text comes to this morning. Mordecai is telling the Jews, remember this story. Remember these characters. Remember what happened because it is part of our story. It is a part of God's story. If you haven't read the book of Esther, go back and read it. There's a lot of great details we just didn't have time for this morning. 
So what does that tell us about our story? Briefly, the story of Esther tells me three things in how we live out the story of God. First, it tells me that God is present in our circumstances, even if we don't realize it. Did you know the book of Esther stands unique in all the books of scripture and that it never once mentions the name of God? God is mentioned in a passive sense, but never once explicitly does it name God. And here's what that tells me, friend. It doesn't matter how dark your journey has gotten. It doesn't matter how far you feel from God. God is with you. Even though you feel like you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, God is there. (laughs) But you also do not need to feel guilty if you feel that way. If in these moments you feel like God has abandoned you, if in these moments you look up to heaven and you say, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Take heart. Because our Lord Jesus Christ himself uttered those exact same words from the cross. It doesn't matter how far from God you feel. God is there and God is with you. Secondly, it tells me that character, not ability, dictates the ultimate outcome of situations. Haman was a man of great ability, but very low character. I have heard questions and seen articles asking why you see so many celebrity pastors fall from grace. And I heard a fantastic answer for that because their ability catapulted them to places that their character was not ready to handle. Friend, it doesn't matter the amount of ability we have if we don't have integrity if we don't have a heart for God and the things of God, ultimately, our plans will fail. Ultimately, we will reap what we sow. But the question is, what do we do until then? Because if we look around at the world, it doesn't seem like the people with the right character are always rewarded. I think then we go back to Galatians 6. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please the flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. Let's not get tired of doing good. Because that harvest will arise. Therefore, whenever we have the opportunity, we should do good to everyone, especially to those in the family of faith. Doing the right thing the right way at the right times doesn't always mean you'll see the results when you want to see them. And other people getting the results that we think we need doesn't mean they are doing it the right way. 
Haman got promoted fast and it looked like he had everything going his way. But in the end, his lack of character, his lack of integrity was his downfall. In the end, Haman reaped exactly what he had sown. So God is with us, but do not make the mistake of thinking that it is about our ability when we face situations, when we face trials. It is about our character, and that comes from our connection to God. And the final thing this tells me is that when we see an opportunity to live into the kingdom of God, when we see an opportunity for ministry, we must simply be prepared to act. Just be ready. Esther's opportunity to be a hero she didn't have to go find it. It came to her. So many people make the mistake of thinking that to live fully into the kingdom of God means you have to go a long way. You have to travel a great distance to find opportunities to live into ministry. And the truth, friends, is that our opportunities are right in front of us each and every day. Listen to the words that Mordecai tells Esther. If you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arrive from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Who knows, but that you are working beside that co-worker for just such a time as this. Who knows but that you are a neighbor to that person for such a time as this. Who knows but that that struggle, that difficulty, that fiery trial that you just endured hasn't prepared you for ministry right here and right now. And friends, who knows but that God has put Trinity United Methodist Church right here, right now, for such a time as this. God is still telling his story, and you're a part of it. The question is not whether God is at work. Even when we don't see God, God is present and God is working. The question is not whether or not we have the ability Because it's not ability that determines the outcome. The only question, my friend, is this. Will you act? When the opportunity comes to you, will you take it? And will you live fully into the kingdom of God? And will you become a part of the greatest story ever told? It's completely up to you. Would you pray with me? God, we're grateful for your story, and we are humbled and in awe that you would call us to be a part of it. Lord, give us the faith to see you even when we don't. Give us the righteousness and the holiness of heart to have character, not ability. And give us the courage to act when the opportunity presents itself. Amen. 
Thanks for listening to The Refuge Podcast. To find out more about The Refuge and Trinity, visit us online at www.trinityruston.org.